Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Hello, everyone. This is Rick Thomas. Thank you so much for joining me for Life Over Coffee. I have a special opportunity that I want to share with you in today's episode. I am going to be interviewing Nancy Piercy. Now, many of you know her. Uh, She's been around for quite a while, and she's written a number of books. And last year, I had the opportunity to read her forthcoming book. We are doing this interview in May of 2023. Her book, Toxic Masculinity, will be launching in late June of 2023. And I had an opportunity to to read it. I wrote a brief endorsement. And I I just, I cannot speak any more highly of this book. It, It is just a fantastic book. And I asked her if I could interview her to talk specifically about it because I want you to know about this book because it is so relevant. Now, for those of you who do not know uh, Professor Percy, well, just let me give you a brief uh, bio of her, and uh, that will get us all on the same page because I do want to introduce, if she's new, I do want you to be familiar with her and her books. Nancy Piercy is the author of the upcoming book, The Toxic War on Masculinity, How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes. And again, we will be talking about that book exclusively today. Her most recently published book, Love Thy Body, Answering Hard Questions About Life and Sexuality. I read that book as well, and it is an awesome book, too. And so you can go 1A, 1B on that. Uh, I'm going to tell you to read Toxic Masculinity first, but you want to follow up with Love Thy Body because it's an outstanding book, so relevant to where we are in our culture. Her earlier books include The Soul of Science, Saving Leonardo, Finding Truth, and two ECPA Golden Gold Medallion Award winners, How, How Now Shall We Live, which was co-authored with Harold Fickett and Chuck Colson and Total Truth. Her books have been translated into 19 languages. She is a professor and scholar in residence at Houston Christian University. A former agnostic, Piercy has spoken at universities such as Princeton and Stanford, USC and Dartmouth. She has been quoted in the New Yorker and Newsweek, highlighted at one of the five top as one of the five top apologists, women apologists by Christianity Today and held in The Economist as America's preeminent evangelical Protestant female intellectual, and that is a mouthful. (laughs) Nancy, welcome. Uh, Thank you for joining me at Life Over Coffee, and it is so good to see you. Well, it's good to see you again as well, and thanks for having me. Uh, You're very welcome. And she says, see you again. We actually had lunch together just uh, last month. She was kind enough to come to our church here in Greenville, South Carolina. Nancy, I don't know if I sent you a a note, but one of our students, former students in our mastermind program, she is in the Army, uh, maybe in Virginia, I don't remember. Uh, She sent me an email. She said, I have a friend who was at that meeting at North Hills Church and uh, I don't know that I don't know her friend. And she said it was just unbelievable. It was just so, so good. And we've heard uh, quite a few folks who have had the same testimony. Uh, but I thought it was interesting that our former mastermind student who lives in another state had a friend who attended and she was just 
uh, just uh, overjoyed at uh, she said Nancy is is super brilliant lady she is a she is an intellect which is exactly what it's exactly what it says here uh, well, but I was you. impressed I was impressed yeah. as well it's the first time that I heard you speak publicly uh, live and in person and that's something that I would recommend if uh, church folk and uh, churches would love to, uh, they need you to be talking because what you have to say here is so important. And so I read uh, Toxic Masculinity in April of 2022. I wrote a blurb for it, but I, I sent you an email and I went back and looked at it. And this has been my standard line when somebody asked me about this book. I told I tell people, this is the best book that I have read, I will read all year. And it is April, April 2022. Well, that year has passed. I read a lot of books, and that statement is true. It's still the best book that I read last year. I mean, honestly, it floored me. But when I uh, I went on our community at Life Over Coffee, our private community, and I started telling them, I said, next year there's coming a book, and uh, you, you want to get it. But when you you open up this book uh, right at the beginning, and you talked about having uh, two dads, and you you said uh, that you had two dads, you had the father in the home and the man in the pulpit. The one in the home, uh, you said, was abusive. And upon reading that, I'm in the counseling world, and so I have I have been dealing with abusive situations for uh, decades now. And as soon as I read that, not knowing you, I prejudged you uncharitably. And I said, oh, no, here is a woman who has been abused. And she's writing on toxic masculinity. There is no way this book can go well uh, for the male species. Uh, but I was dead, dead wrong. Um, you have. And the reason I bring this up is because you're not some uh, ivory towered sophisticate who has had no experience with total depravity. And just per chance, there's somebody here who's not familiar with you. I would really love to hear uh, you share a little bit of your journey uh, and your early life. And then, of course, you ended up at Labrie uh, with Francis Schaefer that many people would know. And I just think it's vital for our listeners to understand that you're not that so you are sophisticated and intellectual, but you're not detached from where the rest of us live. And you can really relate to it, which actually, I think, positions you uh, to be the excellent author for this book on toxic masculinity, not just from an intellectual biblical perspective, but also from an experiential perspective. So can you share a little bit about your journey? Yeah, I do start with the story of my childhood. I, I say I, have, I had two dads. Pri private dad and a public dad. And uh, he was the professor, actually, um, and very well respected in his field. And then he would come home and he would um, he would beat his children. Um, he was severely abusive. I mean, I've talked to other people and it was it was on the high level, <laughs> high end of the severity uh, scale. Sometimes books on abuse will say, you know, was it open hand or closed fist? It was closed fist. You know, he was wow. punching us and he was quite open about it. He would say, uh, instead of saying, um, do this, or I'll spank you. He would say, do this, or I'll beat you. And so and, and he would. <laughs> so in some ways, uh, the way I use that in the introduction, as I say, that I've been writing this book all my life 
because my whole life then I've had to be thinking through what is a biblical view of masculinity and um, how do I get emotional healing? And I, I, I was very, very fortunate that I, I was also uh, partly because of my father. I gave up my Christian faith in high school. Um, we had a, you know, a fairly conventional Lutheran background. And in high school, I was attending a public school. All my textbooks are secular. All my teachers are secular. And I just started asking, how do we know this is true? And so it was a few years later that I ended up at Labrie, which is the ministry of Francis Schaeffer in Switzerland. Uh, we had lived in Europe when I was a kid. And so I'd gone back. Um, and and he, he was known for his apologetics ministry. So I was getting apologetics for my intellectual questions. But at the same time, on staff was a psychiatric social worker whose name was Sheila Bird. And we called her Birdie. And through through meeting with Birdie every week, she addressed the psychological side. The reason she was at Labrie is because she realized that for many people, their objections to Christianity are not just intellectual. Uh, they they often are emotional, especially rooted in relationship with their parents and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she she was the one who helped me realize. I thought I could walk away from my childhood. <laughs> and Rick, you've been in this business, so you know that's not possible. I really thought I could just wipe the slate clean. I had such an unhappy childhood. I was just going to walk away from it and rebuild my whole self from scratch. That was my goal. And it was really, it was Bertie who showed me, no, no, you have to actually work through this. And uh, also, of course, she modeled for me what God's love was like. I had never, I had never been loved like that before. You know, a person I could actually talk about, you know, my, my deepest pain you know, from my childhood, and 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 she didn't reject me. She just kept loving, kept accepting, and so for many years, my model of God was actually based on Birdie. <laughs> when I prayed, I had kind of an exalted, you know, Birdie image in my mind. So the sheer the sheer power of experiencing God's love, you know, when it comes right down to it, that's the ultimate healing. I it's hard to t- explain this to people who haven't experienced it, and I just say, love has power. You know, God's love has healing power. And if you work to have the kind of deep, intimate relationship with God, where you actually experience his love, that is the ultimate form of healing. Yeah, what was the, uh, were you hostile toward, I mean, you walked away from the faith, but was it hostility or angry? I'm trying to connect the dot as to what would bring you to Labrie. Because that's a Christian, that's a Christian environment. So it, it seems antithetical. You're going this way, but yet you ended up over here. People do ask me that a lot of times. If you went to Christian, why did you go to a Christian ministry? Well, I didn't go to Labrie because it was Christian. I went to Labrie because I had family members who were traveling through Europe and who stopped at Labrie and said, come and see us. And in fact, you'll get a kick out of this, Rick. Um, it was my parents. My pa- my father had been uh, teaching. Like I said, he was a university professor. He was teaching in Ankara, Turkey right before the military coup. And there were a lot of uh, car bombings and package bombings, especially against Westerners. And they said, you need to leave. It's too dangerous. And so a, a Christian friend pulled him aside and said, hey, if you're going to be driving across Europe, you need to stop at this place called Labrie. <laughs> and so, you know, being conventional Christians, they had no objection to that. Oh, sure, let's see what's right. going You know, let's see what's happening at Labrie. It's kind of a unique ministry. Let's see what's going on. 
And so they wrote to me and I was I was going to school in Germany. And so I went to Libri to see my parents because I was not going to see them again. They were going back to the States. And so this was my last chance to see them. And so that's that's the irony here is I had no intention of going to a Christian place. No, I was very hostile by that time. I, I you know, Christianity had let me down once before. So I was absolutely not interested in going back. And and, you know, and given, given what I just told you about my dad um, and anything my parents were, I wanted to be the opposite. You know, <laughs> but what, what my dad was. You know, by by definition, I wanted to be the opposite. So, yes, I was very hostile to Christianity by the time I arrived there. And I would never have gone except to see my parents. <laughs> what, what was the initial draw? Was it uh, Schaefer's intellectualism from oh, yeah. an apologetic perspective or was it Birdie from a uh, Christian psychological perspective? No, no, it's the intellectual side of it, because by that time, you know, when I gave up my Christian upbringing in high school. Um, I was about 16, so halfway through high school. Um, and it just, it came crashing down on me. Well, if there is no God, what is there? And I realized very quickly that if there's no God, there's no meaning to life. There's no purpose to life. We're just on a rock flying through empty space. There's no foundation for ethics. You know, you can't really say anything's right or wrong. It's just true for me, true for you. I even realized there was no foundation for knowledge. You know, if all, this is how I actually thought about it. If all I have is, is my puny brain and the vast scope of time and space, then what makes me think I could have some sort of universal, absolute truth? Ridiculous. Right. Obviously right. ridiculous. So I had become very much of a relativist and a skeptic. And from my science classes, I was a determinist, you know, we're just complex biochemical machines. So there's no such thing as, as free will anyway. So, uh, and then I was studying philosophy because I thought, well, if Christianity is not true, what is? And I literally started... <laughs> walking down the hallway at the public high school I attended and pulling books off the philosophy shelf. Cause I thought, well, if, you know, if I can't get anyone to talk to me about these things, maybe these, isn't that the job of the philosophers <laughs> to answer these questions? So I, I was very much steeped in, in philosophy and, uh, and secular thinking by the time I arrived at Libri. So it, I had to work through the intellectual questions first. And I was very thankful that Schaefer, um, treated intellectual questions seriously. You know, even if you have some underlying emotional questions, you know, I had so many Christians say, oh, well, you just, you know, what's wrong with you? You don't have faith. And so, you know, there's something morally wrong not to have faith. Was Schaefer, one of his, one of his uh, favorite phrases was, we need to give honest answers to honest questions. And he did treat intellectual questions as honest questions. And it was only after I began to see that there were answers that I could then be open to, well, what are what are my emotional objections as well? Is that your demeanor and your posture now as a professor? Uh, it, it seems as though, I mean, there's gospel irony here that you, you went down this journey of uh, relativism and so forth. Well, now you're in an academic environment where our culture just comes with, seems like the very same questions that you were asking so many years ago. And so do you have... Uh, uh, Schaefer's perspective on that, where you receive those honest questions and give honest answers. Do you do you mirror that same kind of uh, demeanor? Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, first of all, it, it it has informed all of my books. If you read my books, you can see the traces of Schaefer's thinking um, in all of them. In a sense, I kind of wanted to say, okay, he did 
he was very effective at evangelism and apologetics for his generation. Now, how do we take it further? How do we develop it further, reapply it for, for our own day? Um, but yes, it's it's driven all of my writing and, and teaching because I want to, yes, I want to answer the questions that young people have like I did. And right. one of the comments, you know, students, students give um, evaluations of the teachers at the end of the class. And frequently they'll say things like, she really welcomes, she actually welcomes questions, you know, <laughs> whoa, <laughs> like that's something maybe they haven't always encountered. So, yeah, yeah question, question, questions and answer in an academic environment. I mean, who knew? How, how could it be? <laughs> right. All right. So we're talking about uh, toxic masculinity. It is your forthcoming book in June of 2023. Uh, you talk in the book that there was a, a time when the Bible's view of man was a standard definition. I mean, God made man in his image and it was good. Of course, in post Genesis 3, 6. Everything fell apart. The word man has gone through many iterations. And today, the most common modifier for masculinity is the word toxic. Now, by the way, I I, I thought it was quite brilliant uh, that you would take toxic and put it on the front of your book. In marketing, um, that's called positioning marketing, where you take an idea that's already in somebody's mind. And you position your idea. You're not creating anything new. You're actually connecting to something that they already understand. And so from a positioning marketing perspective, you've done well. Paul did this when he went up on Mars Hill. Mm. Uh, There's an unknown God where they already knew God, little G-O-D. And and so here, let me declare him to you. Well, you've done the same thing. Everybody knows toxic. And so you just added it right in front of your book. I thought that was quite brilliant. However, you go to a whole different place uh, as you talk about toxic masculinity. And that's what makes it such a stellar book. So my question is, why did the word toxic become the primary modifier of masculinity in today's culture? Yeah, let me say about the title. I, I wanted the words toxic and masculinity in the title, but I didn't want to use the phrase toxic masculinity because I don't think it is. And so right. I do kind of a play on words, the toxic right. war on masculinity, right. so that people right. sort of do a double take like, wait, what? what? <laughs> um, right. And um, and the whole book really is um, to answer that question, the question you just phrased, um, which is where did this even come from? You know, I, I, I'm looking at I'm looking at the, the headlines today. Washington Post has a headline: "Why can't we hate men?" I'm like, what in a mainstream publication you can get away with saying something like that? Or a trendy hashtag. Uh, in some feminist circles, is kill all men. You can buy T-shirts that say so many men, so little ammunition. And there are books out now with titles like I hate men, no good men, and are men necessary? And so looking at this incredible hostility, it's become socially acceptable to use that sort of hostile language. So your opening question is exactly the question that was driving this book. Where did this come from? You cannot really effectively counter something if you don't know where it came from. And so in in my book, I I go through both the sort of social economic changes, you know, how, how men's um, work changed and how that changed the male character, but also the secularization 
you know, how our society was secularized. Because as you as you so rightly note, we started out well. America itself started out mostly Christian, right? So we right. we did have mostly a Christian pers- perspective on masculinity. Uh, that was one of the nice things about starting my history with America. Because some people said, well, what about you know the ancient Greeks and Romans, and why haven't you talked about these other cultures? Well, first of all, because you know it wouldn't all fit into one book, <laughs> right? But secondly, because um, it gave me a, a starting point where we could say, well, here's the Christian perspective as it was actually lived out, and then it gave a baseline to see where where we fell away from that high view of masculinity. So, so for example, um, in the colonial era, first of all, uh, many of them were Puritans. I find that to, even at a Christian college, my students will say, I have never heard anyone talk about Puritans in a positive way. Right. <laughs> but, but I do because I found wonderful quotes from the Puritans on their view of marriage. They were incredibly affectionate and close as a rule. Um, you know, the, we have letters, you know, from husbands to their wives. They're very affectionate, very loving, very caring. And so... And of course, as you know, back then uh, in the colonial era, they men worked with their families all day as well. So they were also working side by side with their wives and kids all day, so that they had a very rich, um, very rich multi-dimensional relationships. So, how did we lose that? Is is the whole really the the theme of the book? Yeah, the book is uh, Toxic Moral Masculinity. This is this is episode uh, 467. Uh, if you go to that episode, you can see the show notes. And actually, the quote that you referenced from the Washington Post, it is linked in those show notes. And so, folks, you'll be able to go out and see that, plus some of the other things that she's saying. So there's a lot of information here in episode 467. One of the things that I noticed about the book, I don't remember the number now. And I had an advanced copy, so I'm not sure how it's going to come out uh, when it's actually published. But it seems like there were like 900 references or north of 900 uh, footnotes uh, in the book. It is in Tim Challey said it was an exhaustively researched book. And it really is. And and you could just spend months and months in the book and just running these references to support because you did do a lot of historical research, which I thought was fascinating on one hand, but it was very supportive for the very arguments that you were making. People often accuse evangelical Christians of being oppressive patriarchs prone to abuse, but you make the surprising claim that they test out at the lowest levels of abuse and divorce. And so your book, it it talks about two descriptions of men, the good men and the real man. And sometimes in counseling, people will come to us and, and they complain and they say, the church is awful. And so it's a collective descriptor of the church, that the church is awful. And then I, sometimes if I have the relational bridge to that person where I can like, let's, let's, uh, let's diagnose a little bit what you're saying. The church is not awful. There's aspects of it that's awful. And then people will say, well, all men are bad or Christians are abusive. But you go into the actual details and the statistics of that. Would you explain a little bit about the real man and the good man within the Christian, the Christian male construct? Yeah, yeah. Well, there's, there's two answers to your question. Um, um, 
the sociological studies on Christian men, and then that real men, the the two scripts. So I'll start with the two scripts. I have found uh, that that's very helpful. I had to put that at the beginning of the book. <laughs> You'll appreciate this, Rick. Um, when people found out I was writing a book on masculinity, invariably the first question was, "Whose side is she on?" <laughs> well, that's <laughs> what I said. That's that's exactly what I said. This uh, is uh, not going to go. This is not going to go well <laughs> for me. And so I found I, I found it very effective to put this study right at the beginning, and it's by a non-Christian sociologist. Um, but he he he's very well known in his field, and so he gets invited to speak all around the world. And so he began using that to ask questions of young men all around the world, from Australia, you know, to India, to Ecuador. He, he asked the same two questions. And the first one is, what does it mean to be a good man? If you're at a funeral and in the eulogy, somebody says he was the good man. What does that mean? All around the world, people had no problem answering that question. They said honor, duty, integrity, sacrifice, do the right thing, stand up for the little guy. I kind of like that one. Stand up for the little guy, be generous, provide and protect. And then he would follow up by asking, okay, what does it mean if I say man up, be a real man? And the young men would always say, no, 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 that's quite different. That's not the same thing at all. And I will actually read you their their response because I want you to know this this is their words. Um, That means be tough, be strong, never show weakness, win at all costs, suck it up, be competitive, get rich, get laid. So there are two competing scripts for masculinity going on within men's own heads. In, In other words, the main debate I would say it's not really between men and women. It's between, you know, within men's own heads, between these two scripts. And by putting it at the beginning of the book, I help people to say, you don't have to be on one side or the other because you're not going to attack or defend masculinity wholesale. You're going to say, well, we all all agree with the good man. You know, men are made in God's image. And Romans 2 says they all have a conscience. We all know intrinsically what is right and wrong. Uh, But our culture, tends to press upon men the 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 quote unquote the real man you know um which which if it's decoupled from a moral vision can become what we now call toxic you know the the things that people label toxic are usually the things connected to that script of the real man which is tends to be more secular more oriented towards entitlement dominance and so on and so i ended up using this as kind of a connecting thread in fact through the whole book you know Here's the good man script, describe it. And then here's the real man script, script and how did it develop over time? And, you know, I give several stages in the history of that. So it, that turned out to be very helpful. Um, and again, this is not a Christian sociologist. Um, <laughs> by the way, I got an email from him. <laughs> um, an excerpt of my book was uh, was posted on the, uh, the, a publication called The Federalist. And it had right. it had me describing the two scripts. And before the day was up, the sociologist who teaches at wait, New York City College, I think, um, he'd already written to me <laughs> saying, OK, you want to exchange books? I want to see what you said since you've quoted me. But at any rate, this was a very helpful description. And once I did that, people tended to be real to relax and and uh, and they weren't so hostile uh, about 
uh, about my book. <laughs> yeah, I think it, I mean, it, it speaks, well, I'm a guy, it speaks to my heart. Uh, and I get it because we live in that duality. I mean, Jesus is the good shepherd. I think that's a good illustration of a good man. And then you have in, in our uh, generation, you have John Wayne, uh, who is the real man. And there is that duality uh, of tension. And men who want to do well, we don't like to just to be categorized in a blanket way because there's no nuance whatsoever. And that's one of the striking things that I really appreciated about the book. You, you just didn't put everybody in the same category, but yet you distinguish that there are two different types of men here. You provide a more thorough response to why there is abuse today than many of the abuse books that, that I have read. You don't complain about the problem, which is very good, but you acknowledge it so you don't ignore it. There are legitimate concerns, but you do it in such a way that it doesn't galvanize women into a victim mindset and it doesn't castigate men, every man on the planet. Today's public rhetoric cast men as villains and women as victims. Where did these stereotypes of villainous men and victim women, and those are only two options that you have, where did these stereotypes come from? Yeah, historically, um, a lot of this came out of the 19th century. And, and again, that's why we just have to know this history. Um, in the 19th century, there were a lot of reform movements. What happened after the Industrial Revolution is that as men left the home and went to work in factories and offices, they developed this large public square of factories and industry and banks and academia and government and so on. And many people began to say, well, the public square should be run by scientific management principles, by which they meant value-free. No, in other words, don't bring your private values into the public realm, which is what we still hear today. Well, that's when it started. And so if the public realm was going to be value free, where would we nurture values? Because people still wanted very much to maintain values like altruism and sacrifice and love and relationship and religious devotion. Well, those were then shoved off into the private realm of family and church. And in the home, who was going to preside over the, the realm of values then was women, because they were still home after the Industrial Revolution. Um, and so for the first time ever in human history, women were said to be morally superior to men. That had never happened before, before the 19th century. We're kind of used to it now because we have this double standard. But all the way back to the ancient Greeks and Romans, people thought the insight into right and wrong was a rational insight and that men were more rational and therefore men were more moral. They were morally stronger. They had to, they were the ones who had to keep women in check because women were more prone to temptation and they were weaker. Uh, and ironically, that completely switched in the 19th century. And people began to say it's women who have to keep men in check uh, because men are now out in the, in the public realm, which is secular. You know, they're getting a secular higher education and they're coming home without a strong commitment to the Christian values anymore. And it is up to women to be the moral gatekeepers of society and to refine and reform 
their husbands when they come home at night. So a lot of that tension, um, seeing women as somehow morally superior and um, having the duty to, to hold men in check came out of the 19th century. And it was exacerbated by the reform movements, you know, as uh, as this public realm was secularized, uh, bad behavior increased, <laughs> to put it bluntly, right. you know, gambling, drinking, uh, fighting, prostitutes, and so on. The number of brothels skyrocketed. Sometimes it's helpful to have a single fact to hang it on. In 1830, Americans drank three times as much as they do today. So there was a reason, there was a temperance movement. <laughs> so there were movements against slavery, there were movements against prostitution, there were movements against gambling, there were movements wow. to close close down businesses on Sundays so fathers could have more time with their families. And most of these movements were driven by women. So once again, you know, there was a social expectation that women are the ones who are going to tell men how to behave. So that's that that tension between the sexes is what I think we still see today. Yeah, I want to uh, come to this uh, pivot point because this is a big part of your book, Toxic War on Masculinity, the pivot point between the colonial age and the industrial age. Uh, because that's a huge issue, but you're making a point here, and I, I just don't want it to be dismissed, and somebody needs to pin this on the wall, especially for wives to understand uh, that men live, most men live in a dichotomy. We live at home, we go to work at work outside of the home, and we'll talk about that in just a moment, but there needs to be more discussion of about that because the man has to change gears because in the world it is competitive dog eat dog we have metaphors for this and it's a different environment and then when you come home it even has a lot to do with men coming home and just vegetating because it's just a difficult life to live career outside of the home and that's the industrial revolution that you talk about in the book but my point here is is that Husbands and wives need to talk about this because men are dichotomized between home and the workplace, generally speaking, and they do have to make those shifts where in the colonial age, there wasn't a shift because of the the home and the work was in the same place. And again, I want to get to that in just a moment. But you said, and I'm curious about this, you said that this has been the most controversial book that you've ever written. You were surprised by that. When I read that or heard it, I can't remember which, but why were you surprised? Oh, because my earlier book was Love Thy Body, which deals with issues like abortion, homosexuality, and transgenderism. I certainly thought that would be the most controversial. I did not think men and women would be more controversial. Um, but in the Christian world, you know, among theologically conservative Christians, we're going to pretty much agree, actually, on abortion, homosexuality, and transgenderism. Um, especially if it's presented, you know, like like I do um, in a more worldview sense, you know, not just moralism, you know, not not, not just preaching, but um, explaining the worldview behind it. People said, oh, OK, good. You know, you're giving me language to explain it to my secular friends. Thank you. Whereas this one actually turns out to be more controversial within the Christian world. Um, here's what I mean by that. So. I would, even at a Christian university, my young female students would often tell me that they identified as feminists and they would get triggered if I said something positive about men. If I said men are strong, 
They would say, well, women are strong too. And I'm like, yes, yes, they are. But this is a book on men. <laughs> um, and the men had the opposite uh, re- reaction. Um, at, when I told my class I was writing a book on masculinity, one of my male students shot back, what masculinity? It's been beaten out of us. So men tended to be very defensive. And they would come and they would tell me stories about um, uh, sexual harassment training in the workplace where they said, you know, men left those trainings feeling beaten down, feeling defeated, feeling denounced, feeling like, as one of my students put it, I felt like I was being viewed as a potential sexual predator. You know, like everyone was looking at me like, you know, suspiciously. So men tended to be defensive and women tended to be defensive because I was saying good things about men. So this was actually quite a surprise to me. And I had to rewrite the first chapter many, many times to sort of break down that opening uh, uh, opposition, you know, to kind of tell people on both sides, you know, uh, men, women who are, are concerned about abuse in the church, for example. OK, OK, I hear you. I hear you. Me Too movement, church Too movement. Yes, I hear you. Uh, and then I had to, on the other hand, let men know. I hear you too, because I mean, the irony is for all the opposition and hostility being lumped on men these days, they're doing worse. They're actually doing worse than they did in the past. Boys are falling behind at all levels of education. Right. You know, there's fewer men than women graduated from high school, fewer men in graduate school, fewer men even in professional fields like law and medicine. Um, but men are more likely to commit suicide, to be addicted to drugs or alcohol to commit violence, to be victims of violence. Some 90% of people in prison are men. Um, men's life expectancy has actually gone down in recent years while women's has stayed the same. So that one one uh, magazine called The New Scientist said the biggest demographic risk for early death now is being male. So, so you know, men are in trouble and ironically, you know, they're still being treated as if, you know, they're oppressing women, while in fact, many of them are having uh, a harder time. Well, the statistics, I cite a, a study done in 2016 in, in that opening chapter where 46% of men, so almost half, almost half of men said society seems to be punishing men just basically for being men. And there was a more recent one. It's, it was just a few weeks ago, so it's not in the book, but it was in Britain. 55% of men, more than half, said that discrimination against men is now worse than discrimination against women. So that's our audience. That's who's reading this book, our men who, in many ways, are in trouble today. So and we want, I, I, had to, I had to try to show both sides. <laughs> yeah, I, I hear well, you. I hear you. <laughs> It's uh, so it's a kindness of God to give you a focus group uh, within your college class where mm-hmm. you can uh, make these statements or ask these questions and then you get this feedback. And so it helps you to kind of tweak your own, own your own writing. Uh, you have real time focus group where you can get feedback from your students. That's really great. I want to go back. I, to I, and the, actually, I, I actually I actually organize additional groups. I've been doing this with you all my do. books. <laughs> I do. I get homeschool groups. Okay. I get graduate student groups. I get faculty groups. I get, you know, um, uh, community groups. 
I had so many groups. And and you're right. It really uh, rubs off the rough edges. You find out um, anything that will be inadvertently offensive. I don't care if you're offended because you disagree with me, but I don't want to right. inadvertently right. offend because I didn't say something well. No, that's very kind. This is Nancy Piercy. We're talking about the toxic oral masculinity, her forthcoming book in June of 2023. It is a must read. Now, a, a portion of this book, I want to, it, we've got just a little bit of time left, but you make the point, it's worth pondering of how the transition of a lot of these things that happened, the pivot point was between the colonial age and the industrial age in America, where the industrial age separated men from the home, creating a split in our marriages, in our families, in our worldviews, the work distribution, thoughts about gender, and on and on. And so if you could just describe briefly the typical family dynamic during the colonial age, and then what happened at the Industrial Revolution yeah, it's very important to to go that far back because some people try to trace toxic masculinity, the concept, you know, maybe back to the 60s with second wave feminism. Now, right. really, you start to see it in the literature already in the 19th century. So when men were, were at home before the Industrial Revolution, they worked on the family farm or the family industry or the family shop, and they're working with their wives and children all day. And the concept of authority back then actually had a very different meaning. I mean, it didn't—it it didn't mean you can do whatever you want. It meant right. you are responsible for the common good. You know, so each one of us looks out for what's good for for themselves. I look out for what's good for me. You look out for what's good for you. But who looks out for the good of the the larger institution, whether it's the marriage or the family or the church, the community? Well, authority was instituted so that that person does not pursue his own interest. He pursues the good of the whole. And so the favorite term back then was disinterested, which means not looking out for my personal interest. That was the expectation placed on men. When the that, I mean, that's that, that's Philippians too. Uh, <laughs> let, let this mind be in you. Count others more significant than yourself. I mean, that is the mind of Christ that Paul was articulating there in Philippians 2. Exactly. And in the colonial era, though, they pinned it especially on men. They actually taught that selfish ambition was a sin, which is in Scripture as well. Right. <laughs> Same passage. Um, but several places, uh, the New Testament says, don't don't uh, don't give in to selfish ambition. So the idea was you don't look out for yourself. You look out for the good of the family. Well, right. with the Industrial Revolution, men stopped working alongside people they loved and had a moral bond with and began working in competition as an individual with other men. And already there, you begin to see a change in the language because men began feeling like, well, to survive in this dog-eat-dog -dog world, as you put it earlier, um, this competitive arena, you must be more self-assertive, more aggressive, look out for number one, egocentric, you know, selfish ambition, to use that phrase. Um, and people began to see protest. It starts out with people saying, we're losing our men. You know, they're no longer having this caretaking mentality that they had in the um, colonial era. Um, there was a quote that I just reread re the other day where a woman said, um, in, she, she was writing in a newspaper, um, and she said, in the pursuit of profits, our American men are losing their soul. 
they're 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 living more and more just for money and and personal advancement and so on. And it became more acceptable to to think of a man working for personal advancement instead of being primarily no, I'm working for my family. So that now in my book, Toxic War and Masculinity, I take it through several more stages. But really, that was a turning point. You already see it in the literature at the, of the time people protesting that men's character is changing. To use our earlier language, they were changing from the good man to the real man. Right. And uh, one of the points that you made in the book, which is actually the first time I've heard this, I've heard it once since I read your book, uh, but voting for women, uh, that many women uh, were against uh, having a vote because they saw that. Did I read this in your book? Where Mm -hmm. they saw that uh, this is going to further divide the home. And so rather than having one vote, now we have two votes. And it's just another way. That's just, that was like a shocking thought to me. Like it, it was a worldview turning thought to like, oh, the splintering of male and female and the splintering of the home. I mean, it's down into the minutia right down to voting rights. And I just thought that was a profound thought. Yeah, this is the one reason I had to thoroughly document <laughs> the book because I had so many people questioning that point. But right. so I have several quotes from people at the time, people who were against women's suffrage, and they were female, they were women who would, who said, we used to vote as a, house, as a household. See, it wasn't thought of as male vote versus female vote. It was right. thought, thought as individual vote versus household vote. Right. And many women at the time said, we want the household vote because the household is, should be the basic unit uh, of society, not the individual. Uh, right. But with individual voting, basically, it's you and the government. You know, it's it's each individual has a direct relationship with the government um, as opposed to these intervening social institutions like the family kind of protecting you, being a buffer zone between the individual and the government. They realized that it it was an entirely new political philosophy. Instead of seeing the family as an organic unit um, with with a common good, right? So the person in authority is in charge of the common good. Now you see uh, families as just so many individuals who who are together because they have a common interest, but there's no organic connection. And so this to give it a label, this was social contract theory. You know, America moved yeah. from an organic view of society to social contract theory, which is very individualistic. When our children were younger, what uh, I would teach them, and I would do it by sketching, by, by sketching out things, which is also how I counsel sketching spiritual mm-hmm. concepts out on paper. But anyway, uh, the way that I taught our children what mommy and daddy were is that I took a, just a piece of pinning paper and just drew one line down it, just a line. And I'd hold it up and I'd say, what is that? And I've already taught them. And so they visually, they knew what it was because we've already talked about it, but they would say, oh, that's you and mommy. You're one flesh. You know, it's just, it's just one line. And so I, you know, I'd hold up one finger. Oh, that's you and mommy. There's no distinction between you two. And it's interesting that when we were uh, taking them through uh, I Love Lucy and introducing them to the shows that we watched when we were kids, uh, one of the children said, Daddy, why do they say Mr. and Mrs. Ricky Ricardo? 
doesn't she have a name too? And so I had to walk them through. Well, back then, I mean, this is really the idea of one flesh, but it goes all the way back to, as you lay out in your book, the toxic world masculinity, that that was just a normal worldview, whether it's the husband and wife being one or the family unit being one. All right, so we got to wrap up here, but I have two final questions. One of them is hope. Uh, there could be some men listening to this and thinking, yes, this would be fantastic. Uh, but the way life has rolled out for me, you know, I work over here and I have home over here. I would love to come back to I would love to be regressive and come back to the colonial age. And so what can we do? What kind of hope would you offer to families who believe what you're saying? I mean, what you're saying is biblical. It's very strong is powerful, is transformative, but we've moved along so far now that we're we're in so much dysfunction. But if a husband and a wife wanted to try to have a greater cohesiveness within their family unit, what would be some hope that you would offer them? Yeah, you can't write a book like this without offering some solutions. So I do have a whole chapter on how we might be able to tweak the workplace to allow both parents to be home more. And the pandemic actually made this much more, much easier to talk about because a, a lot of people discovered that they liked working at least part time from home. There was a New York Times article that said uh, 65% of men, of fathers, um, want after the pandemic want to continue working at least part time from home because their family relationships were stronger. And and that statistic is in the book. But then another one came out. So it's not in the book. But um, Again, it was the New York Times had an article and the title was something like during the pandemic, fathers, fathers got closer to their children and they don't want to lose that. And so in my book, I do give a lot of examples. You know, there's no there's no general rule yet. You just have to give lots of examples to inspire people. I have examples of people who found ways to work part time from home or or full time from home in some cases um, or who started their own businesses. Um, or who, um, uh, or even just left work early. I had one guy who said, I left work two days a week at four o'clock to uh, coach my son's soccer and basketball team. And his, and his uh, boss scolded him and told him he was coasting. But he said, it, it didn't, did not hurt my career. And when my children got older, they said, oh, I want to be a dad like you. Right. which is a lot right. better than any workplace award. So yeah, probably, I have, go ahead. Yeah, well, I, so I have lots of anecdotes. Like, I'll, I'll give you just one more. This is one of my students. Um, her husband uh, she, her husband was an IT professional who worked at home during the pandemic. And because he was home, he was able to be more involved with their homeschooling. He was able to, he decided he was going to be the person to make lunch every day. He could take the kids to soccer or whatever. And um because she was somewhat freed up, uh, my student, she's she's an opera singer. I had a student who was an opera singer. Um, she was freed up to start a voice studio. So the whole family benefited from the added income. And I interviewed the husband and he said, I'm I'm never going back to a cubicle. Our family's so much more balanced. And and then the, the final kicker is this. He said, um, the time that I used to spend commuting to work. I now spend praying with my wife every morning. 
so I, right now it's at the level of just yeah. I think you, you've touched because, on several. Yeah, you've touched on several uh, several things, and I, I like the minutia because most people are not going to be able to make wholesale changes. But there are some things that we can shed, whether it's our commute to work. Can we shorten it? Uh, can we cut out some extracurricular activities so that we can be more family centered? Uh, some people may actually be able to come home. That would be wonderful. Uh, but each family can think strategically. And I trust that this book will be motivating to them as you make a strong case uh, for the family unit being together. And uh, it's just a fabulous, uh, fabulous book. And so this is Nancy Piercy. It's episode 467. There's a lot of linkage inside these show notes. The book will come out in June of uh, 2023. You can pre-order it now. And all of those links are here in episode 467. Nancy, my final question is, um, what are you going to write on next? Well, actually, I was hoping you would have a final question. There's one point that we skipped that I would like to make sure we cover. Um, because okay, it's I, I have two, I have okay. two questions. I have two questions for you. One of them is what you're going to write next, and then my other question is I'll let you ask it because I'm not sure which one you're going to ask. Um, I start the book with the good news about Christian men, and uh, and I want to make sure we cover that because that's the good news. That's what's particularly encouraging to our Christian men because they are often considered to be the most uh, the most uh, toxic, right? I mean, I, I was able to go online fairly easily and find quotes like this. Let me just just read a few of them to you. Um, Conservative Protestant gender ideology can, can clearly lead to abuse, both physical and emotional. Another quote, it's no secret that abuse is prevalent in conservative churches that embrace headship theory. Uh, and, and another one, the theology of male headship feeds the rape culture that we see permeating American Christianity today. So I this was originally at the at the end of the book. And then people found the book so um, so depressing as I talked about the development of the notion of toxicity. They, they found it so depressing that I said, OK, OK, wait, I'm going to put this at the beginning. So the, the good news is that everything that I just read is false. And so sociologists looked at these accusations against Christian men and said, OK, but where's the evidence? And then they went out and did research. They did studies. And what they found out was just the opposite. They found that evangelical family men, husbands and fathers, who attend church regularly and who are really committed to their faith, are actually the most loving husbands and the most engaged fathers. Compared to the average American family man, evangelical men are the most loving to their wives. And by the way, yes, they do interview the wives separately. That's important. And so the wives are the ones reporting that they feel loved and appreciated by their husbands. They are the most, evangelical men are the most involved fathers, both in terms of shared activities like sports and church youth group, and in terms of discipline, like limiting screen time or setting bedtime, uh, they're the least likely to divorce. And the real stunner, they have the lowest rate of domestic violence of any major group in America. So the data is exactly opposite of what we normally hear. 
And the trouble is, it's all hidden away in the academic literature. I had to go into the academic sociological journals to find this. And that's when, that was the second reason I decided I have to write this book, because not even Christians know how well Christians are doing. In fact, we usually hear the opposite. We hear that Christians divorce at the same rate as the rest of culture. And so the sociologists went back to the data and they said, let's separate out the men who actually do attend church regularly, you know, who are genuinely committed versus those who on a survey like this might check the Baptist box, but who don't actually attend church, you know, rarely if at all. Uh, so these are the nominal Christian men. Nominal Christian men fit all the negative stereotypes. They are the least loving with their wives. They are the least engaged fathers. They have the highest rate of divorce, higher than secular men. And then what's really shocking, they have the highest rate of domestic violence, higher than secular men. So the trouble is that typically uh, researchers will put these two groups together. If they just look at evangelical men, they will put these two groups together and the statistics will be completely misleading because committed men are better than secular men and nominal Christians are worse than secular men. So um, the, my, my go-to sociologist, the one who did the biggest study on it, and he's at the University of Virginia, and he was actually quoted in the New York Times, New York Times of all places, saying, it turns out that the happiest wives in all America, of course, they focus on the wives because the idea is that, you know, these men are oppressive patriarchs. So they are talking, talking to the wives. The happiest wives in, of all wives in America are religious conservatives. Fully 73% of wives who hold conservative gender values and attend religious services regularly with their husbands have high quality marriages. So that was really one of the main reasons I wrote the book is so that Christians would be encouraged that they are doing a good job. And even, you know, the empirical research is proving it. Yeah, it, I'm glad that you restructured the book because I did not know that. And I will affirm that as I read the book, I did not find it depressing at all. I found it intellectually stimulating. I found it emotionally invigorating. I also found it, you know, psychologically uh, motivating. And so the structure of the book, I think it's right uh, because to me, it was a page turner. I mean, I, I couldn't put it down, but part of it is that it's, it spoke to what I knew intuitively to be true. And it's what you're saying here. All men are not bad. The entire church is not awful. The Bible is true. And when you talk about the good man, I mean, you're just affirming what scripture teaches that if we emulate Christ, the, the ultimate good man, I mean, there's going to be good things that come from that. But if there's hypocrisy and we're nominal Christians, I mean, obviously the worst versions of ourselves are going to manifest as well. But if all you hear is a toxic message, you know, as some of the uh, kids were saying in your classes and other focus group that, you know, I just feel beat down all the time because everywhere you turn, a, a man is a bad person, but it doesn't pass the smell test. It's like that cannot be true because there's it just cannot be true. But nobody's saying it. 
seemingly. I know there are others who are. But when I read your book, I thought it was fantastic. The book is The Toxic War on Masculinity. You can pre-order on Amazon. Is that correct? True, yes. You can pre-order on Amazon. I assume it will be an audible book uh, mm-hmm. as well. It will. And yes. uh, I recommend that you buy two, uh, one for yourself, and then that you, you share one with a friend, especially a discouraged male. But also, I think women would be greatly encouraged, too, because there's just so much hope in this book, because it, it's not just hope for the male, it's hope for the family, it's hope for marriages. Uh, it, it really affirms a worldview that I think most Christians are aware of, uh, but we just need that affirmation, and your book does that, and it's very thorough. All right, so the next book you're going to write is... Well, I'm not quite sure yet, but I'm thinking of doing something about woke culture, critical theory, okay. um, because it's it's kind of the same thing where it's become us. It's become a meme, a cultural meme, and people don't really know where it's coming from. And again, it has much deeper historical roots. And as Christians, right. we'll be able to counter it better, respond more intelligently if we know where it came from and how it developed. When did you when did you uh, write Love Thy Body? Uh, twenty eighteen, I think. Okay, because that, that that book is is somewhat prophetic. Uh, because, <laughs> yes. I mean, things have yes. accelerated. I mean, things were bad, you know, as you were writing the book as far as transgenderism and so forth. But it's just accelerated, and so this uh, Love Thy Body. Uh, it just fits like a hand and glove with where we are in our culture. And if someone were going to buy uh, Nancy's books, I mean, that would be my personal recommendation, The Toxic World Masculinity and Love Thy Body, because they're so relevant to where we are. And we need that data. We need that information and we need to be talking about it in helpful and redemptive ways. Professor Percy. Thank you so much for your generous uh, time. Uh, I would just appeal to pastors. uh, You can contact Nancy. We have links here in episode 467, but you can go to Nancy Pierce. It's nancypiercy.com, correct? That's right. And you can can contact her there. And uh, this is something that you want to share uh, with your people. Thank you so much. And uh, I just appreciate, again, thank you so much for your time. Well, I've really enjoyed talking with you again. It's uh, Every time we talk, it's more fun than the last time. So thank you. You're welcome. God bless. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.